Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. We're delighted to welcome you to today's conversation um, between artist Sarah Pixton and writer Romy Smith, in which they'll be discussing Sarah's current project, an allegory of painting, which is part of an HLF-funded project at the Royal Academy of Arts. For this project, Sarah Pixton has been researching the life and works of Angelica Kaufman, RA, who is one of the two founding female members of the Royal Academy in 1768. Um, Sarah has been exploring the technical aspects of Kaufman's paintings, as well as looking at her as an individual, her identity, and what it meant to be a female artist in the 18th century. Um, the RA has four of Kaufman's paintings, which are usually displayed in the ceiling of the front hall, which you can see um, three of them, actually, at the moment. And for this project, Sarah is producing two new paintings in response to these works by Kaufman. One of Sarah's paintings will occupy a wall of the ramp on the Sackler ground floor, which is the space leading to the Grand Café, and the other painting will replace one of the Kaufman paintings in the front hall. Um, if you go down there, you'll see there's one um, of them missing, and that's where Sarah's work will be displayed. Um, the works were actually meant to be on display from January, um, but are now going to be on display from September until September 18 until August 19. So this event is now a little advance of these works being on display, but it actually gives us a really unique opportunity to speak to Sarah about the work in progress. Um, so now to introduce our speakers. Sarah Pixton is an award-winning artist, an alumna of the Royal Academy Schools. She has won the John Moore's Painting Prize and the Rome Scholarship in Painting. She exhibits internationally, most recently uh, in Shanghai, Seoul, New York, Italy, and throughout the UK, and has worked in the Saatchi Collection, the Walker Art Gallery, and the Mercer Art Gallery. She also has a senior teaching position at the Royal Drawing School. She is the author of Park Notes, an anthology of art and writing for London Park, which was published by Dawn Books in 2014. Um, and she has a particular interest in the contribution made by women artists and writers to visual and literary history in their creative processes. Um, Sarah is going to be in conversation with Romy Smith, who is an international writer who has held prestigious residencies for institutions ranging from the British Council to the BBC. Uh, Romy is the inaugural British Parliamentary Writer-in-Residence and inaugural Poet-in-Residence for Keats House. She has performed her work extensively on BBC Radio, including on Women's Hour, Poetry Please and The Verb. Uh, John uh, Barnard Scholar at the University of Leeds, she is also a visiting scholar at the City University in New York, where her inquiry concerns the absences in the dominant archive in relations to the contributions of historical black, jazz and blues women to the civil rights narrative. Um, Romy has presented original work at the Siegel Theatre, New York, and the Schomburg Centre for Research in Black Culture in Harlem. Her academic writing is due for publication by New York University Press in 2019. So without further ado, please welcome Romy and Sarah. Thank you. So a very warm welcome to you after a week of what has felt like it's been climatically challenging weather. It's good to be here and thank you for being here. I'm absolutely delighted to be in conversation with Sarah Pickstone and much has been said that sings Sarah's praises. But I just want to add to what has been shared that Sarah is one of the very few women to be commissioned to create a painting for the Royal Academy in its 250 year history. And indeed, this year marks 250 years since the RA's inception in 1768. Just a little bit more on Kaufman, um, because I think it sets up our first questions in context. Kaufman was born in 1741 and was a Swiss painter. 
and something of a child prodigy. By the age of 12, her sitters included royalty and nobles and bishops, and she came to London in 1766 at the age of 25 and became a sensation. Alongside her revered portraits, including of, again, royalty and key cultural figures such as the actor, poet and theatre manager David Garrick, her collaboration with the architect Robert Adam led to her producing bespoke um, statement artworks for the neoclassical homes he designed, and that includes Harwood House, which is in my part of the world, West Yorkshire. And her work adorns the music room there and the gallery, and it's embellished by suites of furniture crafted by Thomas Chippendale. I think what's so important to do from the outset is to situate this conversation in context of not only International Women's Month as it's become, but in a context of Sarah's work, the fact that Kaufman's trademark was to put women's narrative center stage. And that often meant placing herself for center stage. And we're gonna to come to that in our, in our questions um, uh, in shortly. So, um, I think we're going to go straight into the first question, which I want to ask you, which is, when did you first encounter Kaufman's work and what's so enduring about it as a source of inspiration? Well, I suppose I it followed a um, body of research, a body of work known as the Writers Series, uh, which had been, uh, had been a long project from about 2010. I had been researching... Um, women and literature and women in history and had moved towards the, the kind of women artists who made up my history. That's, I was looking at my genealogy as an artist, uh, the kind of influences I might have had. And um, so I think in a, a, about two or three years ago, I was reading about Kaufman and was a bit ashamed to have forgotten that she was uh, a founding member of the RA, if we ever knew. I don't know if we ever knew that she was. It's certainly, her history wasn't at all um, kind of visible at the RA, and I was here for three years. And I came to the lobby, the foyer, to look up at the ceiling to find out about elements of, of art, and, and the paintings weren't there. They were being removed for cleaning as part of the building project. And I asked Eliza Bonham Carter, who is the curator of the schools, and she said, uh, go and draw them, you know, they're in storage. So that's what I did. So I was very lucky to be able to sort of set up and, and draw in the stores from the work, um, which the handling team were very gracious and unwrapped and layers of kind of cardboard and plastic. And I got my kind of pencils out and I looked at them and I just thought, these are incredible paintings close up, you know, they'd been designed for the ceiling of Somerset House originally, which was the original seat of the Royal Academy um, for the, the kind of the main conference hall, their main meeting room where all the big decisions were taken. In fact, you can see facsimiles of, of those paintings to this day in, in the banqueting hall, black and white. It's very, it's quite interesting to see them up there. The, the room is much higher than the foyer here. And what's so enduring about the work? Because you come back to it again and again as a site of inspiration. So what's enduring about it for you? Well, many things. I mean, it took a while to get my eye in, in terms of the 18th century. It's not a period that I was very familiar with at the time. When I started drawing from them, 
I realized they're full of color. And I think that was a, an immediate link. You know, I couldn't draw in HB pencil with them. I couldn't draw in any kind of black at all. That I, I had to get the colors out. And straight from the off, I was drawing really quite kind of lurid, lurid linear drawings in, in kind of children's crayon. So she structures her paintings very much from a colorist point of view, which I think was really interesting. And I found that very enduring. Um, but also what she was saying, what she was saying about putting, putting women artists center stage, the image, the, these paintings, elements uh, uh, of art are um, personifications of those kind of, those elements, color, drawing, composition, invention. They're embodied, but not, so they're not only embodied by the kind of classical motif, which is often a feminine figure, but they're actually portraits of a woman artist. So that's, it was that kind of little tension there, or large tension, actually, that drew me in. So for your commission uh, allegory of a painting, you're drawing on Kaufman's um, piece artwork called Colour. Yeah. I'm interested also not just how you as an artist riff off of her work, quote from her work, if you like, um, in terms of content, but how technically you borrow from her. Yeah, that's interesting, because close up, the work, our full, is, is you know, <laughs> she was a dab hand at making things look good from a distance, so a lot of the work really, the way it differs from work of other artists at the time, someone like Reynolds, where you get a kind of contract between the sitter and the artist. Kaufman is very much steeped in the neoclassical kind of tradition of, of embedding the image into the landscape. And within that, she uses things like a white paint as a highlight. Um, she, um, you get the devices of, of an artist making something that's gonna look great from the ceiling. Uh, you get a lot of gestured paint marks on top of the surface. Um, so those things have made a difference. And I was really trying to kind of capture that sense of light and color and, um, they have a very different character to, to everything else, 19th century and, um, and, seven, and 17th century. I'm interested because there's something about looking at your work that I get is a sense of layering and a sense of um, palimpsest, mm. that it's never just what I'm seeing here up front, but what lies behind it. And I'm wondering how Kaufman haunts your work. Haunts, Romy. <laughs> you've used that word before. We've met before and you've yeah. used that word. And actually, I didn't stop to ask you what you meant by it. Um, well, it's presence, it's spirit, it's energy. But you don't mean it in terms of dead people, do you? Well, I mean, I think that... Or do you? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I have this belief in my own scholarship that, that ghosts are, are kind of... Um, they're our ancestry, if you like, as artists. It's the things that, that we house within us, the kind of prints that are left on us by everything that we've experienced that brings us to this point. And I think that's slightly different, although maybe it's not. I mean, I'm, I'm interested in the um, fingerprints of, of mm. Kaufman's presence, energy, spirit on, on you. Well, yes, I, in that sense, um, I think I have been haunted by her. In a, in a good way. Also, maybe with the weather with Schwarzenberg and the, the Alpine village you grew up in, maybe in a bad way today with this, all the snow. But um, I like, I suppose I take from that um, 
the sense of, of inhabiting. I don't know if it's the same etymology of haunt and, and, and I don't know, but I, I like the idea of inhabiting or being inhabited by, I find it helps a lot uh, to, to sort of talk in a sense to um, older writers, older artists, rather than seeing them at, at face value and, and, and really trying hard not to read too much art history about them because as we know, the art history we learnt at school was actually fiercely, you know, conservative, I think. So and masculine. Pardon? Masculine. A absolutely masculine. I mean, we read Gombrich's Story of Art as our base text, um, which never mentioned, which didn't mention many women painters at all. Um, I also like this sense of this kind of trajectory, this arc through history, um, and not really seeing it as limited by time. And I suppose that's where the writers that I was reading, like Virginia Woolf, became very important because she has this fantastic sense of being able to, you know, cut right through our very linear sense of time and just, you know, take what you want from time. So in that sense, I really tried to face Kaufman and what she was doing with the paint as a, in an abstracted way, the colour, and the sense of her, and the sense of her being in the world as a woman artist, as well as just being in the world as a continental artist, a European. I mean, what that must have been like in London uh, at that time. In 1766, she came here, and she's full of expertise, and she's had this fantastic education in Italy. She's full of, you know, Rome and Naples and all those institutions that she's learnt, and she was a, very early on a very... Sort of, she was recognised and an academic in those, in those academies, and came to London. You kind of think, wow, what what would that have been like? So, I suppose in terms of being haunted by her, I'm asking her all those questions as well, if that makes sense. It seems interesting to me that in your methodology, as an artist, you take up space, you work in big scale. It seems to me also that Kaufman is using uh, points, self-portraiture placing herself inside the classical frame as a means by which to enact, if you like, what we would call now a kind of feminist methodology. Do you think there is such a thing as a feminist methodology or, or methods that kind of women artists utilise to um, speak back to patriarchy? You mean currently? Currently and kind of thinking across time. Yeah. Thinking, thinking about what Kaufman was doing with the use of self-portraiture. I mean, I could sort of also draw a line from that to say Gluck in 1942, Gluck's self, beautiful self-portrait. There's a sense of someone putting themselves inside the frame. Now, you don't do that. You, you don't paint yourself, but you paint large scale. And when we talked, you talked about that being a deliberate decision. I think it was deliberate. <laughs> I think it wasn't quite as large as I thought as it turned out to be. I mean, I think I just thought, well, there's a big space, there's a big wall, you know. But and it really helped to have Kaufman at my shoulder because I really, in that sense, she really did haunt me, and she was like, "Yeah, go, babe. You know, let's uh, let's make it big." And um, it's quite big that painting. <laughs> I, I have to say, it's work in progress as well. I, I feel as though I should say that now. It is work in progress. Um, and I don't usually show my work in progress, but because of the delayed um, date being September, I've kind of taken a bit more time over it. Um, 
But to answer your question, I think it's really important, the space that women take, the space that any artist take, and I think this is obviously goes for... I mean, it's a decision, and it's something I talk to my students about, because make a decision about the type of space you want in your work. It doesn't matter if it's tiny. There's nothing good about big spaces or taking up a lot of room. Um, but there are inherent metaphors in taking up space, aren't there? There are inherent metaphors in taking up space. And I think, in a way, Kaufman also suffered because she also... She, made, she, she disseminated her work very successfully through prints, so, but, you know, so in a way, her space was commercially very broad, and she was a great entrepreneur, and she sold her prints. They were hugely widely distributed. So that's a different type of space as well, isn't it? A commercial space. She made work decoratively for all the houses. You're talking about Howard House, Robert Adams. But that also, in some ways, slightly kind of um, trapped her into being, she was so flexible as an artist, I think, um, making furniture decorations, ceiling decorations, that in a way, I think it, it, something's been lost. When the Victorians came along, they kind of um, dismissed her as a, just a purely decorative artist. And I think that can sometimes happen to women's work. I think the feminist movement in the 70s, a lot of women eschewed painting, which was a very masculine, medium, actually, uh, in the 70s, and they took up performance, um, which is really hard to document, you know, therefore very hard to find its place in history. Mm. History is so important, and how things are written down, how things are preserved, and that's, you know, that's why this project is so important, because we, we're putting her back in the place that, that she deserves. I mean, lots of people have been interested in her. The RA's been interested in her for, obviously, the last few years. There's been lots of interest in the work, but I think a lot of people don't know about her. And she was fundamental in, in creating or, or adding to the discourses that Joshua Reynolds wrote. I mean, these paintings are about the discourses of art. They're about Reynolds' ideas on what makes good art. Composition, paint, you know, colour, design, um, invention. But she would have been part of that discourse. I mean, there are ten years between him making his, reading his discourses and the setting up of the academy. So she should have been part of the banter, part of the conversation. But she also suffered, didn't she, in terms of that relationship with Joshua Reynolds, which some people believed was more personal. I'm thinking about Nathaniel Hone's letter. Um, sorry, Nathaniel yeah. Hone's um, image painting and, in fact, her letter of protest to the RA in 1775. Yeah, yes, I've seen, seen that letter. Do you want to talk about that? Because this is, I mean, again, if we thought of, think about sort of... Um, kind of epistolary resistance, her use of letter writing, but also her standing up for her rights as a woman. Yeah, the That's background to that. Yeah. Do you want to give a bit of background on that? Okay, so, so Nathaniel Hone made a, a satirical painting, um, satirical both of Joshua Reynolds and Kaufman, who's kind of, um, is, is basically a wizard, uh, is, is well documented. Um, Joshua Reynolds perhaps um, dressed as a wizard with a young um, girl, possibly Kaufman, and then um, in the background, an image of a kind of a woman in actually thigh-length leather boots, I think, in the background. Am I, am I right, Morris? I don't know. And, um, 
And uh, this painting was shown. She's knee, isn't she? She's, yes. Yeah. So it's an insult. It's yeah. an absolute insult. And the painting was first displayed, and then Kaufman said, I I'm going to withdraw all my paintings from the this exhibition if you don't take it down. So they took it down. And um, he wrote, you know, was, he was humiliated. And she wrote an extraordinary letter about it, which is here in the archive. And it's a very important piece of the RA history, yeah. I'm going to ask you another question about Kaufman before we, we move on to some more questions directly about you and your work. As a writer and a scholar who's interested in the politics of jazz and blues music, I'm fascinated by creative methods that include quotation, riffing, trading fours, which is where, um, for anybody who isn't a musician, musicians converse, trading four bars of metered time with each other as part of building a composition. Your commission for the Royal Academy, as we know, entitled Allegory of a Painting, references Kaufman's artwork entitled Colour, which is here at the RA. Thinking about that painting specifically, how do you, as a 21st century artist, trade fours with Kaufman, creating a visual music which plays across three centuries, time and space, then and now, life and death? Wow, that's, that's, a, that's a question, isn't it? That's Romy Smith. That's fantastic. What a great question. Well, um, yeah, well, you know what paint, the thing about painters is we spend most of our time talking to the wall, babe, not, not, talking, to, not talking to other artists. And that's, that's the thing. I'm in my studio most of the day going, bit of red? Nah, that's rubbish. Bit of blue. And I long actually for a conversation often. And um, I think, to be really frank, I think this is why I make this sort of work, because I am trying to have a conversation with someone other than myself, because it's very boring talking to yourself all day. And um, I, like, <laughs> I do sometimes also say to students, you know, think about yourself, you know, what are we doing talking to the wall and, and this image of a child in the corner somehow comes to mind. And I try and position them so they're looking out to the studio. You talked earlier about Kaufman at your shoulder, yeah. which is a really beautiful yeah. uh, thought. So can you tell us more about that Kaufman at your shoulder in, in your studio, for instance? Yeah, that surprised me, actually, because I, um, I think my northernness prevents me from having any deeply spiritual views on ghosts and sense of... You know, it's, and I have had very strong sense of her, um, and you know, I it, it all good. I have to say, all good. I have had a sense of her being in the studio, so much so that actually, I think most of you know my work, expect it to be a little bit more abstracted. And I started this huge painting, and I had lots of visions for it being quite an abstracted painting, having made all these quite figurative drawings. But I really just, it just didn't work. And I kind of great big swathes of color, and they're fine, but I had this strong sense that it really needed to be much more like Kaufman's painting. Mm -hmm. As though she was saying, you know, come on, you know, make it a bit more realistic. So. In the end, it's ended up being quite figurative, well, very figurative, much more figurative than I would usually um, kind of, I would usually consider. And there's flesh tones, and there are, you know, kind of everything's in proportion, more or less. And that's been very different. So, in terms of riffing backwards and forwards with her, we've had that conversation, and I lost. <laughs> 
perhaps. Let's see. I'm just wanting to kind of get a sense of the process. How you begin, how you begin to take her work and then you begin your own work. What's, I mean, you talk about dialogue, um, you've used the word riffing, um, but, but can you talk us through that process, particularly with this commission? Because it would be lovely for us to understand because people are going to see this piece in September 2018 and it would be really great to get a sense of how it arrived at this. Well, it wasn't a very conscious process, I have to say. It, it evolved um, from conversations, actually, which is, again, what's been so lovely about working here in this way, because it really nobody really knew what it was to begin with, and I still feel as though I've sort of slipped in between the, the conversations and had a lot of support from different areas at the RA, from the schools and from the collections team. And I think it all began with the drawing, and nobody knew when I started drawing, least of all me, that it would end up with this big painting. So I start with the drawing, and I uh, was looking at the edges of the painting. I mean, they're really beautiful close up. They've, you know, I got to see them. They were taken down from the ceiling, and you can see the holes in them where they've been screwed in over the ages. You can see those white highlights in the eyes. You can see. Uh, the flesh tones, you can see where she's made mistakes and gone over it. Um, I have to say, she must have painted them to, for, to be seen close up, actually, because um, obviously the RA were going to be looking at them close up initially. Um, and then I take it back to the studio and then I, make, I made some large watercolours of those. And because there's something about watercolour, which is usually my medium, um, medium, um, and I thought there was something about her work that would resonate in watercolour because of the colour and because of the layering and because of uh, the fluidity, which we haven't talked about, actually, that the images are hugely fluid. And there's also something I want to say about that with, in terms of the allegory as well, the allegorical. But um, I then... So I was working watercolour, large watercolours, um, and translated that onto large, a large board and then made a very, this very large image on panel. Um, and I began it in watercolour because it needed that fluidity in the background. And then I have ended up working a lot on top with an oil paint, uh, which I wouldn't usually do. But then I think it needed a, a sort of, uh, it needed something more um, modelled on top, which is, yeah, which is more akin to her painting as well. So I feel, again, back to Kaufman's kind of voice coming through there. You used the word medium before, and I'm just wondering in what other ways in your artistic process you engage with ghosts. <laughs> um, well, you know, I think, I don't know, it's very interesting. I think you, it's a very interesting point you're making. And I know that we talked about um, the Charlotte Perkins Gilman story, for instance. I don't know if any of you know that. It's called The Yellow Wallpaper. And Romy introduced that story to me. Um, do you want to say a little bit about that, Romy? Because I think that's, that actually is very apt, actually, here, in terms of the wallpaper and, and um, the image of this woman who is entrapped in a room, a nursery. She's supposed to be in recovery 
her husband's put her in this nursery and she, he won't let her do anything, won't let her go anywhere. And by the end of this incredibly finely crafted story, you have the sense of her seeing images in the wallpaper. And uh, are they real? Are they part of her uh, mental uh, illness? Or are they, are they really, through history, are they, are they the, all the selves that she could have been? Yeah, I mean, it's a novella, very short, 27, 28 pages in length, and it's semi-autobiographical, so this is Perkins Gilman processing her own trauma um, and her own uh, relationship and dynamic with, a, with, a, with an overbearing okay. husband. And it's really about the woman creative trying to reconcile the world's demands of her as well as her own um, passion for her own craft and that kind of tension of what the world wants you to do versus what it is you want to do in terms of, of the work and how, um, how what, what's that balance and in, in the end for her the work won but it was at a cost in terms of her human relationships. Yeah, very interesting. When was it written? No, you're testing me. It was the Sorry. late 1800s. <laughs> okay. I, I want to say 1891, but I'm not certain. But I think it was around that time. Yeah, I thought it was a really apt story, given the, the kind of wall as well and the wallpaper. Mm. It's really interesting. But I also think about Orlando, which is a different type of ghost in a way, the Virginia Woolf novel, which I think I have that much more that sense of connection to history where, you know, time is a bit all over the place sometimes for me. And you have this sense of this character, you know, being brought up through time, being literally written through time, which is a fantastic image, isn't it? Maybe it's time for us to talk about your writer's series because your, oh. that series, that sequence of paintings do present figures such as Sylvia Plath and George Eliot, Elizabeth Bowen, Virginia Woolf, as spectres, really. Um, as presence, presences, there's something about the quality again of your, your painting style, which is never to kind of fix the image of them. They are always fluid. There's a sense of them being in transition and there's a sense of them being glimpsed perhaps from the, um, the side of an eye as opposed to kind of fully seen, maybe mirroring some of the kind of complexities in terms of perhaps how figures, figures such as Plath were read in life when still are trying to kind of um, reconcile who she was and there's a sort of sense of lots of um, assumptions about who she was versus perhaps, you know, it depends on how she's being read is what I'm trying to say. Well, that's, yes, that's very interesting. And, I mean, for in Plath, we talk about, and I did cite, I did paint about Plath, and I found that I used the Google image of Plath, and so I really referenced our understanding, our kind of contemporary take on what she looked like, who she was, through Google. Um, other writers, Virginia Woolf, I found easier to paint in a layered kind of way, I didn't, it didn't seem to matter what her identity was figuratively through her portrait or through her, ident uh, her image as such. And she has a much more, a stronger sense for me of, um, of layer layering and um, lots of things happening at once. Um, yeah, so the, I, I find writing really important uh, as an important kind of stimulus for that in terms of form looking at the different form, especially 20th century form, and, um, 
and also just as a kind of, again, that thing about genealogy of where I come from as, a, as an artist. Because I think, to be honest, I think my literary education was probably much more geared towards the female than my, than my history or my lack of history or my art education was. I mean, we talked about women. It's the kind of thing, you know, I grew up with, um, albeit Jane Austen. Um, so I think it was... So the writers are very important. They taught me a lot about how, to, how the possibilities of making work in a different way. I was going to ask about your drawing, that kind of interplay between uh, the textual, the literary, and the visual. Um, I wondered, because narrative is so strong in your work, and indeed in Kaufman's work, but same with your work now, do you imagine that each of your paintings is a kind of novel? Wow, that's another one. Um, a novel, no, because I, you know, the novel's much, much more of a ditty, I'd say, or a short story, if on a good day. I, I really like that kind of, I really like that uh, sort of, I, I like what poetry does, and I, I like what it does. I don't really know how it works, but I like how it operates. I think lots of artists read poetry. Um, something to do with attention span, I think, as well. But I think it's, it's um, there's something really key about and precise about, uh, again, about time and about, the, about grabbing an image in time that um, is the same as painting, I think. It may not be the same as all visual arts, but I think it's really, I find it really akin to painting. So there's something about feeling in there. I mean, the two people that come to mind when you reaching for a definition of poetry is Caroline Duffy, our poet laureate, who says that poetry is the music of being human, mm. which I think is one of the most beautiful definitions of poetry that I've ever encountered. But I'm also reaching for Charles Simich, the American poet, who talks about poems being other people's snapshots in which we recognise ourselves. Mm. Absolutely. I, I think at its best, that's the sense I have... Um, Yes, I think so. And I, actually, that reminds me that you... Uh, I mean, you talk... I've heard you talk about the voice before. And do you think there's something in that too? There's something that it's important um, in poetry that often you think of it in terms of voice, uh, less so than a novel with lots of different characters. So you... And people tend to, I think, say poems to themselves if not out loud they're they're kind of saying it to themselves which is a sort of hearing your own voice well again Duffy talks about poetry being a form of secular prayer which I completely okay. concur with the idea that we often carry round lines of poetry with us and that poetry often speaks to people at times of great crisis I mean there's a reason why we have a national poet I mean typically royalties poets so the poet laureate but nonetheless that poet is tasked with finding words for situations in which other people find themselves wordless. So there is something there, I think, about... Okay, that's interesting. So you think that there's something that uh, goes straight to the core of, of uh, an emotional sense, and it's true, because it's the same with song, isn't it? And a kind of... I suppose the initial, before novels, before kind of great literature, ideas were passed on through spoken word Absolutely. and through song. But I draw a line with, from, from the poem or the song to, to the visual image, which is that before you hand me a textbook telling me how to deconstruct that image or deconstruct that song, I feel it. 
So the poem is a vehicle for feeling, the artwork is a vehicle for feeling. I feel it, and then I have to sit with what that means. I mean, that's the thing when, you know, there's a um, beautiful Billy Collins poem about this, which is where he is making light of the fact that students always ask him what the poem means. Um, they want to know what it means, and I think that's the same with the visual arts. People are confronted with something that feels complex and challenging. They need you to tell them what it yeah. means for them, yeah. rather than sitting with. What does, what's the feeling when you sit with that piece? What does it do to you? And I think an artwork, whatever it is, whether it's textual, uh, whether it's visual, it, and I think a poem is also visual, uh, and I think an artwork is also textual, um, it's a vehicle for movement of feeling. I am not the same as when I first started to encounter that thing. I am different. I've undergone a transition. That's the success of the work, if it makes me feel different. If I, I completely agree with you. I think it's an agency for... It has some agency for... And, and I think with paint in particular, I think it, it, it is something very visceral and bodily and means that you can project your um, self onto a painting and, and feel the texture and the colour, and it does work on you in a sensory way, as it, it, it should do, or, or artists use it to deny that as well. It should be like smell or touch. Yeah. I think what I'd like to do is I'd like to take some questions. Um, mine was less of a question than an observation, Sarah. Um, and we had, it's been a great conversation to hear an artist and a poet together. And in some respects, your paintings look abstract. Um, but actually, and I was really struck by looking at your new ones, especially today, that in fact, they're just patches of detail, different ways, different detailed responses, all in one picture. So back to Romy's idea, that um, you need to sense something or go through a transformation. I just thought, your paintings looked as if they were like a poem, actually, and that various sections appeared to be a verse, each of them, of a poem, which reflected back the themes. And one other observation is that people don't read poetry a lot these days. I mean, it's much more popularly known. Novels seem to be better, even though it's shorter, and you would say that it required less um, attention to detail. But I think the point about poetry is it's very intense. And again, I was looking at your paintings thinking they're very intense and very beautiful. Um, so thank you. <laughs> well, I think that's a very nice thing to say. Thank you. And I, um, I don't know quite how to respond to that. But uh, other than... Um, because one never knows how, how the work is, really, which is the awful insecurity of the, of the artist. Because you have to make the thing in the dark. And um, apart from me asking constantly... Martin, is it any good? Uh, I think it's really, you know, y you have to live with the insecurity of it probably not being any good. Um, so that's very nice to, that y you feel that it resonates on some level. Um, but I do agree about the intensity of poetry, and I think that's, um, there's something very mysterious about that. And I think mystery is a good thing. And that's something that I think uh, painting does very well, the unspoken. Again, a slight observation. Um, you know, obviously, that Angelica Kaufman almost became a singer. I mean, she was very into her music. And I just thought it was really interesting when you were talking about the sort of riffing off it. And whether, I mean, obviously, as, in, as a singer, she was a singer, she must have thought about performing and gesturing and, and communicating. And I just wondered whether you saw any of that 
in her work. I mean, thinking in particular, like colour. I mean, there's a wonderful self-portrait where she's having to choose between music and painting. And I just wondered, yes, and, and thinking about gesture, whether you felt she brought any of that into the work. Yes, I do, absolutely. I love there's a paint, the painting that's up in Yorkshire, the Nostal Priory painting, where she's caught there between... Um, is that she's caught there between music and painting. And another one where that Romy knows uh, where poetry is personification is embracing her. So I think she does bring, uh, there's a musicality, you might say, and there's certainly something I haven't really talked about is the lightness of her touch, which is an 18th century classical kind of... Um, I suppose it was a condition at the time, it was a, it was a fashion, but she had this exquisite sense of lightness, which I think doesn't always sit well afterwards, and we're so used to Victorian paintings being heavy and defined, that she was accused of not being very good at drawing, for instance, but actually she knew exactly what she was doing because I think she is really layering up the, the, the textures um, in quite a musical, I would say, as a non-musician way. I think she does play with colour. There is a conversation going on in the paintings between the, the very strong colour that she uses. And I, I'm sure that the musical education she had and also her having to choose. I mean, she really did have to choose between music and most women in those days chose singing, didn't they? Or chose music because it was considered more ladylike. And she chose painting. So I think she must have suffered some sense of loss there as well. Perhaps she couldn't be both things. Also in that particular painting you have, um, art pointing in yeah. the distance, which uphill, is, yeah, which <laughs> the, is just the harder a, route. This is the harder route, yeah. So, and that's the one she took, which yeah. says something about her character. Yes, strongly about her character. I mean, she was. We should say she was hugely successful, and she was very well liked as well. So she seemed to be very sociable. Um, so it's interesting that she took a kind of less sociable activity of painting, maybe. Um, but that painting in particular is beautiful because we have one really bright red dress and one really bright blue dress. And there are, you could read that as a kind of musical synergy. I was interested to hear you talk a bit more about allegory, Sarah, with those paintings. And the relation, well, I don't know to hear you talk anyway about allegory, but the, um, the use of the female figure to embody a kind of, embody literally a quality. As a female artist, but gesturing to kind of notions of art where women weren't expected to be the artist and yet we're looking at images in which those in those paintings the women are making the art and I thought it there was a connection possibly to your writers series as well that was quite interesting about having female figures and what they represent yeah absolutely I'm glad you brought that up um because the allegory is something I'm, you know, I, I think we're not necessarily used to seeing, especially not in, in, in contemporary visual art. We're not used to reading it, I think, the idea of the story. I do think lots of writers use allegory, contemporary writers. But um, the sense of allegory, for me, I, I came to it as thinking that you could be more than one thing at once. And Marina Warner talks about the 18th century, everybody dressing up a lot, you know, which is something we don't really do now. Everything's stripped back now. We're very kind of, you know, you've got to be very authentic, you've got to be very much to your core. But they were all dressing up and being whoever they wanted to be on different days, uh, which I like that idea. But um, 
so there is something there. So there are many layers to those particular, this particular group of work. You've got the, you've got um, the allegory. Okay, so you've got the abstract idea embodied in this pictorial image, uh, the idea of what art could be: drawing, composition, invention, color, and then you've got uh, the self-portrait, because I, we think maybe they're self-portraits, but there's certainly in other paintings, she, there's allegories. There are allegories uh, where she uses herself as the model. So what she's saying there. And then at the same time, they are um, representations of a kind of universal working artist. So there's uh, three different layers of interpretations just in the allegory. And I love this sense of being able to be more, th thing, more than one thing at once. But exactly, we have talked about that in terms of voices. I mean, you talk about that really well in terms of bringing together. Well, uh, yeah, absolutely. The notion of the multiple self, that there's not a singular self. The notion that there's one writerly voice, there's one artistic voice. I think you can play and that you become and you conjure other, other parts of the self. Yes. Yeah. part of play which I know is a big part of your method, play. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Yeah, a really fascinating conversation. I loved your comment, Sarah, about mystery being a good thing, which, of course, is true of both poetry and painting and perhaps more things in life. And in the, the various works, all the series, the new allegory work and the writer series, that sort of sense of detail and intensity that you have in your work and then the space that it leaves for us to, to go into. And I have a specific question about the writer's series. We're interested in, I mean, I love all the, you know, the Stevie Smith and the, the, um, the Catherine Mansfield, absolutely gorgeous ones. I'm interested in now, right behind you, you've got The Tempest, and before that you had The Rose. So those are two different approaches into the writing using theme or image. And I wanted to ask about those two. Are they specifically linked to one writer's in your mind, or is it a conglomeration? of images from different works that influence those? Well, actually, those two paintings uh, were painted after the end of the writer's series. So I know we've titled them here as part of the writer's series. They weren't, they weren't included in the original exhibition or the book. But I see them as an extension of the project. Um, the rose, I had been, you know, the rose obviously comes out of the idea of the park. The park was my framework, my space that I gave to the writer's series. It was a kind of, uh, a sort of device, really, for encompassing writers through time, through history, in one place. Uh, very specifically linked, to actually, to Regent's Park in London. Um, so you have, visually, you have this sense of this playground and this beauty and this composition where lots of different minds and, you know, and, and writers thinkers through time could come. Um, so the rose, I painted all the roses in Regent's Park one year, um, but then that, that actual painting shifted to become, I, began, I was thinking about the, the history of roses and the fact that they often came from Syria at that time. And so in that, uh, that time of painting, that particular rose, I was thinking about Damascus. And it, it's linked with a, a hand of, from Guernica behind it. And the Tempest is sort of a bit more self-explanatory from Shakespeare. Thank you. Very enjoyable. Um, I just um, your 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 connection between poetry and art. Um, Rowan Williams describes poetry as being words under pressure, 
I wonder, Sarah, if you think that you have paint under pressure. <laughs> That's a good question as well. Um, I think you need a certain pressure to kind of make the thing. And that's often why you, one uses deadlines, but I think that's a very literal interpretation of what you're saying. I think there is some sort of pressure, yes. It's some sort of... Um, otherwise, I wouldn't kind of do the things. Um, I, d I don't know what that is, though. I'm, um, you're technically doing some interesting things with uh, um, aluminium, for instance. You're sort of placing the brushes under particular pressure. You're... You're kind of Marina Warner talks. Yes, about this that's in her. true. Yeah, it's true. So, so there's a. I suppose I think of pressure. I think about it literally in terms of mark making and the kind of marks you apply because that's the that's the register and that's also the the um, that that's the evidence of the pressure. I suppose um, or literal pressure. Um, and I suppose I wipe off as much as I leave on, and so somehow you come to try and make an image which is just right for what your intention was, or it, come, it comes right after a while. Um, it is deeply mysterious. <laughs> Sorry. We'll take another question. I was just, you mentioned about the uncertainty of knowing if your work's any good. And I'm just curious from doing this project and your practice more generally, if you think that uncertainty is a is particularly a issue for women, or I know that artists can be very humble and not see their work clearly. But just like you make a decision to go big, can you make a decision to see your work as good, whatever that may mean, that, no matter what anyone else says? That's and, a good question. Okay, I think I think you can. I think. You know, there are pitfalls of thinking you're brilliant. And I do think I use uh, uncertainty, insecurity, self-doubt as part of my working process, which annoys everybody like mad because I ask everybody all the time <laughs> for reassurance. Um, and um, actually, maybe I don't as much as I'm, I'm joking about. But I think it's interesting. Maybe also that draws people into a dialogue about something because it's got to mean more, it's got to make more sense than just to you as well. So you have this sense, is it any good to you? Yes, well, you can live with yourself and your own response to your work. Is it any, does it have any meaning out in the world? Well, those things do matter when you're, you know, when you're a certain way on in life. They don't matter when you're a student necessarily. But by the time you've been going a certain time, you know, there's little point making them if they don't have if they don't resonate on in some level with some wider community um so it's so it's a delicate balance between doubting yourself enough to for the work to live and breathe and be a little bit open and a bit a little bit worried a bit anxious and being confident enough that it's got to it's got a job to do Kaufman uh, seems quite talented in the area of, of confidence. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I'm sure she wasn't. I think, I think it, it, it is something to do with this, going back to the space that you occupy. The, the, the language that you use around your work is really important. Um, and those are things that you can learn yourself and, and uh, practice. And 
you know, there's only a certain amount of self-deprecation that's interesting. Um, so you have to be confident about the work. I think Kaufman was very confident, but also she had necessity. You know, she she lost her mother when she was very young, and she and her father travelled through Italy as jobbing artists. I mean, he was a jobbing um, church painter. And so she grew up knowing what it was like to kind of, wow, all right, Dad, let's move on. You know, okay, you want me to do the, the, you know, the veil on this, I'll do the veil on that. And she knew what it meant in terms of economics as well. And she was very, you know, sh she had earned a lot of money by the time she left London. So um, in, in that sense, she, she was confident, yeah. I can't um, help reflecting on the fact that we're having this conversation in what has become International Women's Day Month and that your commission in response to Kaufman is happening in 2018, which marks the centenary of the Representation of the People Act, which allowed um, all men and some married women over the age of uh, 30 the right to vote and that it's 90 years since the Equal Franchise Act, which meant that women over the age of 21 could vote. It's also the RA's 250, in which the RA begins a programme of development in regard to education and access. Much is made of that word legacy at the moment. What debt do you feel that we in the present tense owe figures such as Kaufman? Well, I think that, uh, you know, I'm really excited to find out about her and I was, you know, it felt like a real, a very strong connection, particularly through the RA and there are people here who studied at the RA at the same time as me. And I think we, had we known even a bit more about her at the time, that would have been, it would have been enriched our, our work, I think. I've come to understand that history is everything and history is massively political and um, how things get written down, how things become recorded is really important. And it seemed to me that Kaufman was kind of not really written down at the time or became very um, overlooked in the RA's history, certainly through the 19th century. And in fact, 1922 um, saw the second RA, female RA in Laura Knight. So there's a huge gap between 1868 and, uh, and 1922 with, where there were no women in the RA. So I think she, but it, I mean, the more I read about her, the more it seemed quite normal at the time for her to take up this position. I mean, I don't think she was doing anything. She was just really good. That's the thing. It was very, there was no question about doing it because they wanted, you know, equal gender, you know. She was, she was extremely good, but she had this confidence from the European, I think, education. Um, it's very important that she is written down and written into the story of the RA and that her expertise is known about. And also, I feel a bit guilty because I haven't mentioned Mary Moser, who is the, also the other founding member with Angelica Kaufman, who um, is possibly less well known because she made fewer paintings um, at the time, but both of their histories have been sort of uh, have been overlooked. I feel, and I feel a huge debt to her and other, you know, the the other kind of the other points in the family tree. So we shall look forward to seeing. 
uh, the unveiling of your commission in September 2018. And just to tell you that this morning's event is part of this, and I hope you have it, it's called the Feminist Futures Series, which is taking place here at the Royal Academy. It's a, a week-long celebration of women, art and architecture. I'd like you to, like you to join me in thanking Sarah Pickstone for wonderful uh, conversation this morning. And thank you very much to you for coming along. Thank you also very much to Kira Milmo and also Jennifer Sherman and many others who were involved in the making of today or making today possible. Thank you once again. I, I, I have a few thank yous to say as well. First of all, thank you to Romy Smith, who has... <laughs> who's been an absolute dream and just one of those fellow artists that you meet where you make a strong connection and um, I'm really looking forward to following your um, you know your work in the future it's been a real blessing um, I also want to just thank the RA team because it's just it's been an amazing uh, opportunity that's evolved over time and uh, you know, we didn't know what it would be by the end, but anyway, thank you to the whole team, in particular to Tanya Moore and Ali Burnett, who have been awesome. Um, I also should thank three fantastic uh, women um, who have helped me uh, through sponsorship. Manuela Worth, uh, Catherine Velasto and Jill Hackle, uh, all of whom I would like to thank in, um, for their sponsorship. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.